Good morning, Lucas. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, would you join me in prayer? Holy and gracious God, we, uh, we gather in your name, the only name on heaven and earth we can call upon to be saved. And Lord, we call upon your name that you would uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that you might illuminate our hearts and our minds and our souls with your truth, that uh, we might grow in you and that you might grow in us. And Lord, I just pray that uh, for all of us here, that uh, wherever uh, the evil one might be attempting to distract with whatever kind of nonsense, that you would drive that out with your light. For those who are here who, who are suffering in uh, conflict, family or otherwise, that uh, you would just uh, let your peace rain down on, on their hearts like rain. For anyone here who is feeling alone or um, hurting, that in a way that only you can, you would touch their hearts with your love. Lord, I also want to thank you that uh, we have this wonderful place to come worship. Not only this building where we're protected from the elements, but we have this wonderful praise band. We have Doug and Andrew and Nick who are going to miraculously show things on the screen. We have these screens. We have musical instruments. You've given us so much. So we just want to thank you for all that you are doing for us because of your great love for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 16. And as we go in, you, if you have a Bible or you can see on your phone, you might want to look along with me because uh, sometimes I don't get it right. Um, but as, as we look at Acts chapter 16, I want to give you a little bit of geography and historical context because it is relevant to us today. And so I want to show you some pictures. And so if we could put the first picture there. So where we're at in Acts chapter 16 is that Paul and Silas have decided to go back and revisit and re-strengthen and re-encourage the churches that had previously established on a mission trip. And they're on their way of doing this. And you can see a lot of the cities that we talk about in the, in the Bible, Colossae and Ephesus and Corinth, Colossians, etc. Okay, these are cities we read about in the Bible. But in this particular case, as they're going back to these pre-established churches and strengthening and encouraging them, um, Paul has a dream. And in his dream, he sees a man from Macedonia. See Macedonia? And the man in his dream says, come help us out. And at this time, there wasn't currently a church in this place. So Paul determines to go to Macedonia, particularly a place called Philippi. We have a book in the Bible called the Philippians, right? Well, Philippi is a significant place, and it's significant to you and I. But I have to give you a little historical context to understand how that works. <clears throat> Philippi is a lot like Houston. It's a port city. It's rich in resources. It's a big place. It's spread out. The origin of Philippi goes back to 359 B.C., so it's a very old place. In 362 B.C., a guy by the name of Philip II of Macedonia conquers Philippi and names it after himself. Philippi becomes even more significant, significant over the course of time because in 44 B.C., there was a guy by the name of Julius Caesar who's leading Rome, and he is killed by two guys named Brutus and Cassius. Brutus and Cassius try to take over Rome. They get in a conflict with another two guys named Mark Anthony of Anthony and Cleopatra fame and a guy by the name of Octavian who is the stepson of Julius Caesar. So then in 42 BC, Mark Anthony and Octavian defeat Brutus and Cassius in a war that occurred in Philippi. And so Philippi now becomes part of the Roman Empire. The other interesting thing about Philippi is kind of like I-10, Philippi was on what was called the Via Ignatia, 
It's kind of the major thoroughfare. It's how the Romans would get all of their goods out to these outlying posts that they had that went all the way down into where you see Jerusalem and what have you. Okay? So Philippi is a significant place on the map. It's a significant place in history for Rome. So this guy Octavian, when he defeats um, Brutus and Cassius, he becomes the leader of Rome, and he changes his name to Augustus Caesar, and he's a really ambitious guy. And what he decides, uh, can you show us the next picture? This gives you a little bit more context. By the way, Asia Minor is Turkey. You see Greece, and then it shows Europe. Let's look at the next map, please. So you get a bigger picture here of what's going on, and you can see Philippi, see where it says, uh, what is that little place up there? Thracia. See Philippi below that? I don't know, it's real small, maybe you can't see it, but you see where it's at in the context of Europe. Augustus Caesar decides to spread the Roman kingdom into what we today call Europe, and you can see Hispania, might be Spain, right? And you see Galea, which is France, and you see Germania, where many of our heritage come from. But you see Europe there, and the Romans are taking this over. So when all this is going on, God is going to have a plan to utilize all of these things that are going on to spread his word. So fast forward to Paul, who goes to Philippi because of this dream he has, and he and Silas hear about a prayer meeting that's going on about these people who believed in God but didn't know about Jesus. There's no church there. So Paul goes to this prayer meeting, and he meets a lady named Lydia. And Lydia is a businesswoman who's an influential lady, and God had already prepared Lydia's heart to receive the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. The importance of Lydia for you and I today is this, that this would be the bulkhead or the beachhead where God would introduce the gospel message, the salvation of Jesus Christ, to Europe. And it would spread, starting with this lady Lydia, westward into all of the European countries. Just above Greece, you can see there's a Bulgaria and Romania and all these places. This message that would go into Europe would start with this lady Lydia. Eventually, it would spread across Europe, and it would come across the Atlantic Ocean to a place called the United States of America. And so in many ways, although Lydia had no awareness of this, the Holy Spirit had moved her to faith to trust in Jesus Christ for his salvation, and God would use that message to spread through Europe to come to you and I today. And the privilege that you and I have today of being in this wonderful building with all these privileges we have started with this lady named Lydia. There were other people involved also, but it started with this one lady. And God would use the significance of Philippi because as a port city, people came and went and all these people going back and forth and they didn't have FaceTime and, and Facebook and Twitter and all of the you know, media accounts and what have you. But when people would come and go, they would talk. And this lady Lydia would talk to people and the other Christians would talk to people and it would spread and it would go back into Europe because of the significance of the position of this place. I wanted to give you a little bit of that context so that you can understand how it's relevant to us today. But as I was looking at this message, we're going to look at Acts chapter 16, we start to get into something else that for me becomes a wrestling point with God, okay? So we're going to look at Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 16 through verse 25. And if you just read along with me here, it'll be on the screen. If you have your own Bibles, you can look at it. I'm using the NASB standard, so um, it may read a little bit differently, but that's okay. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, meaning Paul and Silas, the place where they had met this lady Lydia and Lydia had had her transformation, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. 
who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed, and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were whining and complaining and feeling sorry for themselves, saying, why is God doing this to us? And this just isn't fair. Right? Oh, sorry, that's what I would be doing, okay? <laughs> that's what I would be doing, all right? But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. This is where I kind of start wrestling with God. And here's why. Paul and Silas were doing exactly what they faithfully believed God wanted them to do. They went, and they met this lady Lydia, and they saw this great transformation, and it started the church that would lead to you and I being here today. They see this woman who's being exploited by men. And eventually, they remove the exploitation ability by casting this evil spirit out of her. And by the way, they were going to church. And for all of that, where do they find themselves? Stripped of their clothes. Well, first they were wrongly accused. They didn't even get a trial. They get beat up after they're stripped of clothes. And when they're a hot, bloody mess, they're taken into the deepest part of the prison, put shackles on their feet, and left there. And, and I struggle with this with God because I'm thinking, wait a minute, God. They're doing what you asked them to do. And you allowed this to happen to them. What's the purpose in this? And I struggle with that, not only from my personal standpoint sometimes, but I also know what some of you are going through and how sometimes life is very, very difficult. And there are things happening in your life that, boy, you just wonder, God, what are you doing? Because I know that as well as you can, as faithfully as you can, you're trying to follow God. But then look at this mess. Well, as I wrestled with this during the week, <laughs> and there was a lot of wrestling going on. Not wrestling, because that's kind of fun stuff. This is wrestling with God, where it's like God and I are having a tough conversation with each other. There was some truths that I came to that, that if we're going to have an honest discussion about the suffering of this world and, and the bad things that happen, and sometimes bad things that happen, not because we're doing something wrong, but because there are bad things in this world. If we're going to start talking about the suffering of this world, the first thing we have to talk about is that suffering is a part of this life. And, and it's not only part of this life, it's how do we look at it? See, the world looks at, at the wrongness of this world and, and the things that go bad in this world and says that the problems are out there somewhere. But the solution to the world's problems is somewhere in here. There's a solution. And so the world, trying to find the solutions in here, 
puts its trust in the institutions and systems of this world. So, in other words, if we just had the right government, whatever that means for various people, just the right government, things will be better. So what we need is we need a better economic system. What we need is a better ecological system. What we need is more education. Wait, better yet, let's let science lead us. These things, if we just get smarter, and, and we, all of these different things that, we, that people put their trust into, that will kind of take away the reality of pain in this world. Unfortunately, that's simply not biblical. It goes against what the Bible tells us. Because Jesus says the problem is in here somewhere, and the solution is outside. What we see in this world is the manifestation of the problems that are in here. Because it's out of our hearts that come bad things. Jesus talks about, you've heard it said, don't kill. But I tell you the truth, if you have hateful thoughts towards somebody, it's the same thing. And where does the hateful thoughts come from? From within. So we have to look at the life and say that suffering is part of life. And if we're going to be honest about suffering, we have to start with Jesus on the cross. And why he's there in the first place. You see, the suffering in this world is not because of external components. It's because of man's sin in this world. And there's a reason why Jesus is on that cross. And I want to look at 2 Peter now, or sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2. Because we're talking about suffering and why there's these bad things in the world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. To this you were called, meaning us, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, often I hear people say, Jesus gave us an example to live by. I think it trifles Jesus' life to say that. Because the inference is, if we were just nicer, if we were more loving, if we were more accepting, if we were more tolerant, if we just were better people like Jesus, that things would be better. And the reason it trifles Jesus' life is because of all the people that were ever born, that will be born on this planet, he's the only one that was born to die. And very clearly it says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That's a hard one. That Jesus suffered, and therefore, that's our example. You know, in all the scripture, there's only two cases where Jesus is specifically cited as an example. One, he said himself as he was washing the disciples' feet, I give you an example. And here's the other one. Well, 1 Peter 2.21 goes on to read, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overcome and overseer of your souls. 
He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. You know, when we talk about Jesus as our example, in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says, and at that time, the disciples are first called Christians. And to be called a Christian means to be a little Christ. And it means that as people look at us as Christians, they would see a reflection of Jesus in us. It doesn't mean that we would be like Jesus. It means that we would be Jesus-like that he would live and grow in us and that people would see him living and growing us. And it starts with us coming before the cross and realizing and acknowledging and confessing why he's on that cross in the first place. The second thing that was uh, another piece of truth that I had to deal with in this week as as I'm looking at the difficulties of this world is that God is not the author of evil. The suffering that goes on in this world is not God authoring that. It's not God bringing that about. It comes about from man's sin. And I think, as I think about my friends and, 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 and various people I talk to, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But I have friends who say, yeah, I believe in the God thing, I believe in the Jesus thing, but God just can't help me with my problems. So instead of God being all-powerful, God is impotent. He's without power. And it's a difficult position to be in to realize that there are sufferings and hurts and sorrows in this world, but God's in control. And nothing happens outside of God's authority. Nothing. God permits or promotes everything. Now, It's too great for my mind to understand why he permits certain things and why he promotes other things. I don't understand it, but I'm not called to. But it is truthful that God is not the author of evil because God is good and God is loving and kind and gracious and compassionate. And so when we talk about God is good, I want to look at Romans 8, 28 and 29 in the context of the sorrows of our life. Romans 8, 28 and 29. For we know that God causes some things for the good to work together for good. Well, we know God causes most things, right? Uh, Almost everything, right? We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. I don't understand how in the midst of tsunamis and earthquakes and uh, hurricanes that God would cause those to work for good. But it says all things. I don't understand how amidst war and terrorism and ISIS and murder and all the ugliness that goes on with children in this world, I don't know, I don't understand how God causes all things for the good, but he does. And I don't understand how, regardless of who the mayor of this city is, the governor of this state, or the president of this country is, God causes all things for the good. I don't understand that, but I'm not called to. But I know that in a broad sense, in the big picture of things, all the way back to Lydia and even before that, all the way back to Jesus and all the way back to Adam and Eve, that God has been working His good for His children and for everything to work together for His good. That's in the broad sense. But then there's also the individual sense. 
For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. You see, the good that God is working in our lives is that He is conforming us to the image of His Son. And the image of His Son is the Son who in the Garden of Gethsemane would say to His Father, Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me, but not my will, thy will be done. In other words, he's saying, Father, I love Oikos, but if there's another way other than me dying on the cross that they can be saved, now would be a good time to show me. But not what I want, Father. What do you want me to do? Because I trust you, because I know you're a loving God, and you're a loving Father, and my trust is in you, even if I have to go die on a cross for them. That's the image that you and I are being conformed to. And through these difficulties and through these struggles and through these challenges, the, the conforming is occurring. Okay? And I'm going to give you a list of some of the ways that God is conforming us to His Son so that we would have that trust in the certain eternity that we have in Jesus as well as the certain assurance we have of God's all-conquering love in our life today. Now, this list is not comprehensive nor exhaustive. There are more things that God does than I'm telling you here. And neither is it exclusive, meaning that I may show you one thing that God does that is good, but it doesn't mean that's the only thing he's doing in a person's life, okay? So the first way that God causes good in our lives, conforming us to the image of his son, is number one is that God causes discipline in us. And let's look at Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there that this father does not discipline? This is not a fun one. But can we be honest and acknowledge that we need discipline in our lives? And honestly, that if God didn't intervene in our lives with his discipline, there's no telling where we might be. Maybe not even here. The problem with discipline, and I'm speaking from my own case here, and I don't know if you're like this, but when God is disciplining, there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind. Number one is that God has punished me. This is just punishment. Did something wrong, I'm getting punished here for what I've done. The problem with that is that God punished his son, so he doesn't punish us. Discipline us, yes. Punish us, no. The second part of discipline that I don't like is it's not fair, according to me, right? I have a friend, a business associate, who uh, back in the mid-2000s, he, he and I were talking, and he's a really wonderful guy, and we were talking about God, and he said, you know, I don't, I don't want a fair God. I need a merciful God. And it was some famous words he said to me, and the guy's name was Roy Kreider, and, and you've never heard of Roy Kreider, but you may have heard of his son, or sorry, his grandson. See, his grandson, when he was 17 weeks in the womb, they discovered that he had spina bifida. And the doctor suggested to Roy's daughter and son-in-law that they should terminate that baby. It's going to be born a spina bifida, the, the disabilities and what have you, it's just too much, too much for them to take on. Uh, they being 
uh, faithful people and, and Christians said, we're not going to do that. They got connected to uh, Vanderbilt University, which was in 1999 doing some very uh, um, different kind of surgeries, and in fact doing surgeries in the womb. And they decided in spina bifida what happened was that the baby's spinal cord wasn't sealed off, and that they were going to go in and microsurgically seal off that baby's spinal cord. And uh, the, while they were doing the surgery at 21 weeks old, the little baby reached out and grabbed that doctor's hand. And you may have seen that picture, even on the freeways of Houston or on the internet or wherever, but in 1999, that baby reached out at 21 weeks old and grabbed that doctor's hand. And they completed the surgery, and uh, the couple went on to have a second child also born with spina bifida. And the man who told me, I don't want a fair God, I need a merciful God, also told me, and I love seeing my grandchildren play in my front yard. He didn't say it wasn't fair that they were disabled by spina bifida. He said, I love seeing my grandchildren play in the front yard. We need discipline in our lives. Another way that God works in our lives and does good is God causes hope in us. Look at Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. He's not punishing us. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As we go through these difficult times in our life, suffering produces perseverance. We persevere through these things. Perseverance results in character, which we would not otherwise have. And then the perseverance and the character results in hope. Not I wish, but hope. And not in hope in institutions and systems of this world, but hope in a real God, a loving God, a Father God who is intimately involved in our lives. Because as we go through these situations and we pass through these situations and we feel and know and experience God's moving us through these situations, we now have hope, not only for today, but for tomorrow and for eternity. Another way that God works good in our life is God causes maturity in us. James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Hate that one. Knowing that testing of your faith produces endurance. Once again, we're talking about endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Can we be honest that some of us need to grow up and that we're never finished growing up? We're never finished maturing because we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. And that image of, Father, I trust you, no matter what. Another thing that God does in our lives, the good that he would do amidst our suffering, is God causes glorification. Look at Romans 8, 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also be glorified with him. 
in our sufferings, and God is working, we're being glorified. Another good that God causes in our life is God causes humility. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. You know how it goes. When life is going good, life is good. When life is going bad, y'all's fault, God's fault. Unfortunately, God has had to introduce humility into my life because I don't come by it naturally. In fact, pride is what is natural. And all sin is pride. There's this nature within us that would willfully and deliberately seek independence from God. And that nature is foolish pride. If we think we can live without God, try holding your breath for the rest of the day so you don't have to breathe God's air. And allow your heart to only beat one time so it'll be under your control. We have foolish pride and, and God is working humility in us. God also causes compassion in us. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, as we're going through difficult times and the children of God come around us and God comes to us and provides us comfort, we learn how to comfort other people when they're going through tough times. And by the way, I don't come by that naturally. God has to cause that in me, work that in me. Another thing that God does is God causes him to trust him and him alone above all else. Luke 14, 26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is another one of those hard ones. Jesus is not saying hate your family. But he is saying Trust me and love me above everything else. So that we might be like some of the people that we often read about in the Bible. Like a guy by the name of Abraham who had one singular son and God says, I want you to sacrifice that son. And Abraham says, okay, because I trust you. So that we might be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, worship me or die. And they say, you know what? Our God will deliver us from that furnace you want to throw us in and he'll deliver us from us. But even if he doesn't, I trust you. Here's something that's in Habakkuk. And Habakkuk was a guy who knows that the Babylonian horde is coming and they're going to take he and his people captive and they're going to be captives for a very, very long time. And this is what Habakkuk says. For the people to arise who will invade us, I wait. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, Though the yield of the olive should fall and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the field and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on the high places. Even if I don't have any food and there is nothing I'm going to trust God. One of my favorites is Job who says, though he slay me, 
I will trust in God. Nevertheless, I'll argue my ways before him. God, you can kill me if you want to, but I'm still going to trust you. I might want to talk to you about it, but I'm still going to trust you. Okay? God is causing us to trust him and him alone through these difficulties we go through. God also causes his glory to be displayed in us. John chapter 9, verse 2 reads, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Quite often as we're going through these difficult times and we don't recognize it, other people are looking and saying, wow, look at what God is doing. Another thing that God does is he refines us. Zechariah 13, 9. I will put into the fire, I will refine like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. I don't know if you know, but the way that gold is made, they take rocks that they find, little ones, big ones. They put it in a pot and they heat it up. And they melt down the gold and burn off the impurities. And rises to the top. Some of the impurities go off in a vapor. And there's a thing called scale on the top. And they skim the scale off. And the way that a goldsmith knows that the gold has been purified and is pure in the way that they want it to be, they look in the gold and they see their image. And God says, I'm doing that to you. That's the good that I would cause in your life. As I said, these aren't exhaustive or comprehensive of the things that God does, but there are a few things. And if you think about these attributes, whether it's compassion, or humility, or trust, whatever those attributes are, are they not the attributes of Jesus? That God is working in us? And unfortunately, sometimes that has to happen through a lot of pain. Well, as I said, I wrestled with that this week, and think about Paul and Silas, and somehow, at midnight, they're praying and singing praises of how great God is. This wasn't their first rodeo, if you know what I mean. It wasn't like they, that day was the first time they had a tough time. There's all kinds of things that we don't read about that doesn't mention. I, you know, they got on boats and sailed around. Those sailing trips weren't just you know, smooth sailing all the way. What about food? What about the difficulties that they endured? You know, they're in a prison. I, one time I went to, uh, a couple times I visited a prison, not as an inmate, not as a guest, visited. Uh, and um, with the ministry, by the way. Um, and there was nice buildings and concrete floors, and they had toilets and sinks in their, in their cells, and um, um, had this worship experience. It was out of this world. It was a really cool deal. This is not that. <laughs> this is a dungeon-type deal with no running water, no electricity. Bad situation. But yet they find an ability to trust God in this situation. Okay. Acts 16, verse 25 to 33. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison's house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And they all ran out and got out of there as quickly as they could. No, that's not what it says. 
When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, we're all here. Do not harm yourself, we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. They could have ran out of the prison when the doors were open and the chains fell off their feet, but they didn't. They stayed. Sometimes doing the right thing is very difficult and costs us and hurts. And sometimes when we are hurting and doing the right things, God is doing a work in the people around us. Whether it's moving us to speak to a woman like Lydia that God will use to spread his word around, or whether it's a man who's a prison guard who's ready to kill himself, because God has made us his instruments of peace. And, and my, my hope is, and my prayer about this discussion, was that maybe we'd look at suffering in this world a little bit differently. And maybe we'd start asking, okay, what, what is God doing here? Because God is good, and he's not the author of evil. And he's doing something good, not only in the broad sense, in spite of what we see and hear in, in the media and social media and all the other stuff going on, that God's doing something good here. And on an individual basis, the good that he is doing is that he's conforming us to the image of his son. The son who would say, I trust you, Daddy, even if I need to die for them. And he gave us that example that we might do that too for each other. So my prayer is that whatever you're dealing with today, that you realize that God's not punishing you. And you don't want it to be fair. Because God is a loving God and a compassionate God and a gracious God, and he is working good in our lives. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, truly you are a good God. You are a merciful God, a God of full of compassion and grace. You have a patience that we can't even comprehend. And in your love and in your way that sometimes doesn't even make sense to us, even when we're hurting, even when we're suffering, you're causing good. So help us to trust in you. Help us to grow in that trust. Help us to find the reassurance of not only the certain eternity we have in you, but that you're all-conquering love in this world today. So that we might live for you. So that we might do as you suggested and die to sin and live for righteousness. And that as we come across people, they would see Christians, little Christ, Christ-like. They would see your reflection of you living and growing within us. And that you would have your effect upon the world around us. And as we pray that, Lord, we just entrust it all to you, surrendering it all to you, giving you all that we have. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.